The clientele is changing dramatically. The workforce is not. The administration has decided to empower the same people, structures, and systems that caused harm to people of color in the first place. Knowing that they might experience trauma as a professional. We do hear some really specific examples of racism in the schools. Is, is, is this an emergency? This is not going to be easy. If you think the people that have made change didn't cry at night, didn't feel lonely, identify, ostracized, that's not true. Change doesn't happen without a little bit of pain. Plant those seeds and become those teacher encouragers. If you love this profession, be a teacher encourager. I am a Teach Plus Rhode Island Policy Fellow. Teach Plus Rhode Island. And I'm a Teach Plus Rhode Island Policy Fellow. I'm a Teach Plus Rhode Island Policy Fellow. I'm from Teach Plus Rhode Island. So my name is Spencer Sherman, and I'm the director of the Office of College and Career Readiness at the Rhode Island Department of Education. Um, our office oversees mostly, we focus on high school. Uh, we see um, oversee work going to high school, adult education, and a little bit of um, middle school work. The overall initiative for all the work that we're doing for high schools in Rhode Island is called Prepare RI. And the idea here is that we have, um, there's always this problem of, you know, kids will do high school and then they'll take a big jump and go to college and they'll take a big jump and go to a job. And all these pieces of this big puzzle don't always fit together. And so what we've done with Prepared Island is try to create a strategic unified aligned plan so that we create a clear pathway. If kids are going from high school to college to a job already, we wanna make sure that the systems that support them from high school, all those systems, college, all those systems, and the economy, all those systems are working together in a way that better supports kids and helps them make that transition. So all of that falls under the broad umbrella of Prepare Rhode Island. Prepare Rhode Island is a partnership between um, RIDE, the Office of the Post-Secondary Commissioner, the public colleges, and the Department of Labor and Training, and the Governor's Office. And so what this does is it brings together all of those work streams under a common plan, a common set of goals, and actually just a common team. So we meet together on a weekly basis to think about how we can better make um, our high schools, our colleges, and our workforce better serve our kids. From the perspective of the State Department of Education, you know, you're, you are so zoomed out that um, it's helpful to zoom out even more and see what is the pathway of, um, of a kid's education look like? And so I think the most powerful data that um, we've been able to find and the some that um, I asked for when we, when we started up is looking 10 years later, imagine you had like a high school reunion 10 years later, what would all of the students who started Rhode Island high school say about how they've done, you know? If they actually all met up together, what have you been up to? Have you, you know, did you go to college? Did you finish college? Do you have a job? And um, what we did is we gathered together um, a bunch of different data and worked with a bunch of partners, including at the Department of Labor and at our public colleges, um, and particularly this organization called Data Spark, which is housed at the University of Rhode Island, and created this little map that is like a, basically a big flow chart that shows what happens um, to kids as they progress from freshman year on through 10 years after. And so the data we have right here starts with freshmen who started college, or started, sorry, freshmen who started um, high school in the 2007-2008 school year. Within those 10 years, how many of them graduated from high school? And so you see is a little split. Imagine a big arrow that splits. 80% of those kids graduated from high school, 20% did not. And then after that split, you see, let's look at just those who graduate from high school. How many of those enrolled in um, some sort of form of college? 
either in Rhode Island or outside in publics versus non, non publics. And you see a decent number do. So um, about 63% of those enrolled in um, post secondary. Um, in state, 20% enrolled in some other kind of post secondary. And then about 15% of those high school graduates did enroll in any college whatsoever. So that's more or less typical of other states. I think the thing that really strikes me is let's look at just zooming in on those kids who went through that first hurdle, boom, they finished high school, boom, they enrolled in public post-secondary. How many of them show up in college and start taking college level coursework, which you sort of think would be the typical thing you do when you enroll in college. When we did the numbers, it looked like only a little less than half, about 46% of students um, were showing up and they were taking um, what's called remedial coursework. They were not yet college ready, despite showing up at college. And then if you follow those kids who start off enrolling in um, college, not taking um, those college level coursework, they really didn't do particularly well in terms of college completion. So they're roughly half as likely to finish college. So when you take this big, big zoom out look across um, the 10 years of high school uh, for kids, you see that there's a number of hurdles you need to get in order to get a high school diploma. You need to start high school, you need to finish high school, you need to enroll in post-secondary, you need to take credit-bearing coursework, you need to finish. And by having a chance to zoom out and look at those 10 years, we can start seeing where are the problems. You know, if you're just at the finish line of a race and you don't know where people tripped up along the way, it's hard to diagnose the problem. And so I think diagrams like this and this kind of data analysis we're trying to do to help to figure out if you're not finishing a race, where are you tripping so that we can go and you know patch up uh, the holes along the way. So I think the most famous test people think about when they think about getting into college is the SAT. So in Rhode Island, you need to take the SAT not only um, for college admission, but also every kid's required to take it as part of um, school accountability. Kids might not know that, but um, I'm sure all the teachers do. There's another test though that people don't really think about very much, which is um, a placement test that students take oftentimes when they get on a college campus or sort of the summer before. That test, in, um, there's a, in Rhode Island, um, there's a test that's developed by URI that people at URI and Rick use. Um, at CCRI and most other institutions, there's a um, test created by um, College Board, people who do the SAT, called AccuPlacer. So AccuPlacer is much less famous than SAT, but it's extremely important. Um, because what AccuPlacer does, it determines whether or not you are eligible to take um, credit-bearing coursework whether or not you are you know, going to show up at high school and taking college coursework or they're taking high school coursework. I think one thing we're trying to do is at, from Ride's perspective is share that information earlier. So let's say that test, you're enrolling at URI say, and you take that test and it says, oh, you can't take um, college level math. You have to take a remedial um, course um, at, at URI. What we're trying to do is, there's two ways you can think about that, that little like red flag that pops up when you take the test. It could be a true negative, it could say, actually, this, you know, this student really isn't ready. Good thing we caught that. It also could be a false negative. It could flag you as not ready to take that coursework, but turns out if you, if you just enrolled in that course anyway and took the course anyway, you probably would pass and do well. And I think we're thinking a lot about true negatives and false negatives a lot you know, in this COVID world where there's all this medical testing, but I think the same thing applies for, for, for these kind of tests as well, for academic tests. So one thing we're trying to flag is, are there kids who have false negatives? They're flagged as not ready to take that coursework. They're put into a different track um, when they're in college and therefore you know, get behind and not able to get out. And so one thing we're trying to do is push that test earlier into high school so that when someone gets that red flag, the red flag is raised when there's other people at the high school there to support them. So we um, had a 
really great time working with the colleges. They've been very, very cooperative because it's an issue that they're trying to grapple with as well. And so one thing we're doing is just pushing the test instead of being a sort of a surprise, basically it's a pop quiz for kids before they show up at college campuses. We're making that a planned thing that happens their senior year of high school. Um, Tennessee did a similar thing and it seemed to work uh, work for them. Um, so so that's that's one one big thing. There's also, if you're being flagged as, as an intermediate coursework, we need to make sure that you're actually getting the coursework and that if you complete that course, then you're able to um, enroll in the credit brand coursework in college. So we're doing a project called the um, Preparari College Readiness Project. And under the College Readiness Project, right now we're just doing pilots in um, uh, Woonsocket and Providence. But under this pilot, those students who probably would be on track to take remedial coursework in college, they are getting a readiness course in partnership with Rhode Island College. And if they pass that course their senior year, they can show up at um, at Rick's College campus in the fall and not have to take any remedial coursework. Um, so that's a huge thing that we're uh, we're excited about. CTE is career and technical education. So career and technical education, um, it's a huge uh, focus of um, of ride, and I think a growing um, importance across the country. And what it is is preparing kids for jobs. I think some people, when you first hear that, you think about that old school Votech model of, you know, woodshop that I'm sure we all took or home act. That's not what CTE is. So CTE um, includes preparing people, you know, for not woodshop, but I'd say like jobs and carpentry. But basically, if you think about it, every single person in the country needs to be prepared for a job, right? Some jobs you can do after high school, some jobs you can do after college, um, and some jobs you need a PhD for. All of those are jobs that require you to get skills and training. And so what we're trying to do in Rhode Island is um, expand CTE and expand it to not just sort of some of the old jobs um, from the previous economy, but to the new jobs, the new economy. So we're spending a lot of effort trying to think about expanding computer science, for example. Um, that's a huge uh, growing field in Rhode Island and across the country. There's a lot of growth in the medical space, obviously, particularly right now um, under COVID, but more broadly, um, the, you know, medical and the health industries have been expanding pretty dramatically on Rhode Island. And so we want to prepare students for those growing jobs that are going to be there by the time they graduate. So what we've done in um, uh, for CT in Rhode Island is we've partnered with industry and had industry help us set what the standards are. So we have this board called the CTE Board of Trustees. It's made of a mix of educators and business leaders. And we work together to figure out, the business leaders say, here's what I'm looking for when I hire someone for entry-level position. What are the credentials? What are the college credits? What are the things I'm looking for um, in those candidates? And then we then adopt those standards, th those recommendations as standards. So every CT program in the state in order to um, get funded by RIDE, in order to get our support, needs to show that you're preparing students at that benchmark for jobs that start after high school and also for jobs like a lot of our computer science jobs, for example, um, which we've expanded pretty significantly um, for the CT programs. A lot of those involve going to college. So a lot of those um, sort of the culminating, so for example, like a URI intro coding class would be the sort of the end, the way to end your high school transition. And the idea here is that what we don't want to have you do is hit a brick wall. A lot of people feel like they finish high school, they hit a brick wall, they don't know what to do next. We want to you know, get rid of those brick walls and build more bridges so that when you're finishing high school, you've already done some causal coursework. So it's easy for you to take a foot out of high school and into that job right after high school. One of the things I think we're most proud of of our CTE landscape in Rhode Island is that any student across the state can enroll in any CTE program across the state. I think that's good for the kids, 
The other thing, it's also honestly good for the whole system, because one thing we found is that there's some schools that were building computer science programs that are getting really popular. A lot of kids were transferring um, using this uh, the system to take those uh, computer science programs. And the home high school that was having those kids leave to go to a different high school for them, they're like, you know what, we should just build this in-house. And so they did. So I think it's that kind of you know healthy competition. <laughs> it's good for sports games, um, and it's also good um, for, um, for CTE because it helps you know high schools figure out what do parents and kids really what are they asking for and how can you better give it to them xqri is an initiative we're very excited about in the state it's something that we've done in partnership with xq which is a national organization what xq does is it tries to look at how can we rethink what high school looks like a lot of the current model of high school was you know developed over 100 years ago in response to a very different world and a lot of it honestly is sort of built on sort of almost like a like a factory <laughs> type model as if you're you know you know, building widgets, but instead of widgets, you know, it's knowledge in kids' heads. And I'm not saying that that doesn't work a bit. It certainly does, but it also can be much more flexible. And um, I think where we see it falling short is um, helping build kids' creativity and helping them find like real-world applications for the stuff they learn in school. So that's something that XQ works on nationally. Um, and they previously done national competitions across the country to uh, identify you know, interesting, innovative models for high schools. We are the first state level partnership with XQ. And what our partnership does is helps build a, um, a knowledge base and um, information that help empower educators and students and parents and families to rethink and redesign high school. So what we've done with this partnership is we've identified a number of schools from across the state. Um, 20 high schools were part of our um, planning cohort. They um, got some deep dive analysis about how what their kids are saying from surveys and from um, a lot of uh, like long term data results of their of their students, and also a, a pretty like world class curriculum, um, training them on what does design thinking look like. If you're designed backwards, not from the way school always has been, but designing back from how would you design school around students' needs. So instead of trying to fit the kid into the school, try to fit the school around the kid, um, and what would high school look differently in Rhode Island? So we've done that. Um, that was the first year was the um, planning year. And what we're doing going forward is we're moving into the implementation year. So um, those 20 schools got varying level grants. Um, some got quite large grants of half a million dollars each to implement their ideas. And others got um, smaller, smaller grants to sort of build on it more before they go big. But we're hoping in coming years that this model sort of builds little um, spotlights and best practices, then then we can expand uh, across the state and ultimately, I think, um, making Rhode Island a national leader and expand um, across the country. So the Individualized Learning Plan, or ILP, is a plan that every single student in Rhode Island should make to figure out how they can best pursue their goals, how they can best pursue their dreams, their interests, their passions. Um, it exists in our um, state regulations that starting in sixth grade, every kid should meet with their school counselor or teacher or other sort of caring adult at least twice a year to talk through, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? <laughs> you know, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go to college? Uh, what kind of things interest you? What, what excites you? And then this becomes the roadmap that they follow from um, middle school through high school and beyond. It helps kids be a little more strategic about what courses they take, how they spend their summers, what they would major in, um, what kind of uh, jobs they should be doing, and so on. So we've done a lot of work trying to expand the ILP and make it easier for kids. Um, we've created a list of these online platforms that are um, pretty good and very interactive that help um, students take, for example, I think we've all done those sort of little like surveys about, you know, 
what, what kind of jobs you could get at, what your interests are. We build those into those platforms and we're trying to lot, provide a lot of support to school counselors so they can help have those conversations with kids. So kids can make um, informed decisions about um, what kind of courses they're taking and how they're spending their time both in and out of school. And we're trying to build the supports to make sure that those are sort of built on long-term planning. I think it's something that all of us struggle with is probably, you know, zooming out of the day-to-day -day and thinking about the long-term. But ILPs are hopefully the way that little uh, roadmap that follows kids throughout their middle school and high school experience um, that helps them make sure that they don't get lost and they sort of stay on the right track for their long-term goals. Hi, I'm Christine Lapierre. I am a Teach Plus Rhode Island Policy Fellow. I'm technically a senior fellow. This is my second year involved in the fellowship. I teach 11th grade English at Hope High School in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, one of the projects that I worked on through uh, the Teach Plus Fellowship last year was with the Providence Public School Department, and it was a learner profile project plan. And basically, um, in January of 2019, um, myself and two other Teach Plus fellows here in Rhode Island, who also teach in Providence, um, started going to meetings. And we started working on this project that had already been, I want to say, about nine months in development. And most of the folks who were involved in the conversation at that time were at the district level. So when we joined the conversations, it was really the time to start getting input from different teachers um, on the Learner Profile Project. And it married into the student-centered learning work that I had started doing in, through my involvement with Teach Plus. Ultimately, the goal of the Learner Profile Project Plan was to improve student outcomes by providing actionable data um, to both students and teachers so that teachers could personalize instruction based on the information that we would have that would be stored in this learner profile project. So it was basically a, uh, an internet-based storage system for data. And that's something that is so important, especially in a big district like Providence, where you have, um, I want to say it's somewhere between 35,000 and 40,000 students. Providence has 62 different tech products that they have licenses with. And each school has products that they prefer and that they think are uh, the most user-friendly and give them the most accurate information. But the problem is those 62 products, there's no data interoperability. So if I wanna compare a student's score on the PSAT with their score on the STAR reading um, screener test, I literally have to open a web browser to look at College Board and see those PSAT scores and a separate browser to look at the star scores. And if I wanna compare that to a student's grades, well, that becomes another window. So the goal of this learner profile project plan, at least at the high school level, was to provide one place where 
all of this information could be housed and could be stored. And so where myself and the other two fellows who worked on this project, where we got involved was we each took a different area and started looking at the overlap in terms of the requirements that the policy regulations have for these. So the, the first requirement was the IEP, which is the individual education plan um, that special ed students have. One of them was the PLP, which is the personalized literacy plan, which any student who is not technically reading at grade level um, or within a year or two of grade level, they need a PLP, a personalized literacy plan. And then there's the ILP, which is the individual learning plan. And those are very, very student-centered. And that's where students kind of start doing some of their career explorations, their interest inventory, um, some goal setting. And so you have these three, I don't know, reports, data points, if you will, on kids, the IEP, the PLP, and the IEP, if the student has one. And there are different regulations from the Providence District, the state of Rhode Island, and the federal government for what each one of these three things has to have. And so in my piece, what I did was I looked at the regulations at the district, state, and federal level and looked for areas of overlap to make sure that all of the requirements were being covered in this learner profile. Because right now it is completely disjointed and separate from any other data. Like you literally have to dig through the computer system to get to a student's PLP to look at whether they've made any progress towards goals that are being set. And those goals for the literacy plan are all set by teachers with very little input from the students. So the learner profile project was really about making that more student-centered and having the students set goals the project has actually been affected by a lot of things that have happened in Providence this year. When we came back in September of 2019, we got to the point where we actually had a model and we sent it to an elementary school to kind of beta test the model and give us some input on working out the kinks because the timeline that we envisioned for this would be to start it with kids that are in the fifth grade this year so that next year it would be an organic transition to their middle school and then high school. And then um, we lost a little bit of momentum because as I, I um, mentioned earlier, Providence was taken over by the state in November. And when we were taken over, um, we had an interim turnaround uh, superintendent and she came out of retirement to be that interim superintendent for us. And uh, unfortunately, you can only do that for 90 days because then you run the risk of losing your pension. So she was only with us for about three months 
And in that time, they hadn't actually hired a new superintendent. So there were a lot of other things that were immediate priorities that needed to be handled by the two departments that were kind of overseeing this learner profile project. And then of course, COVID-19 happened and we, um, and that happened, gosh, two weeks, three weeks after they, the state did hire turnaround superintendent for Providence and he accepted the position sometime mid February. And I think two weeks after he came to Providence, the schools had to transition to distance learning because of COVID-19. The wait is over. Providence now has a superintendent to guide the troubled school district out of state control. The Department of Education introduced turnaround superintendent Harrison Peters today. Good evening, I'm Patrice Wood. And I'm Gene Valicente. We've been waiting months for this. Others turned it down. And the commissioner was criticized in the process. NBC 10's Ashley Cullinane, live in Providence now with word on the new man in town. Ashley. Right now, Harrison Peters is a deputy superintendent in a Tampa area school district, one that's about 10 times bigger than Providence. I asked him about his commitment to this city and what he's going to do to turn this district around. I truly believe that genius and talent is distributed equally across zip codes. But what I've found is opportunity isn't. It's all about opportunity for students and for new Providence Schools Chief Harrison Peters. Change happens at the speed of trust. I acknowledge that. And I just asked for the opportunity <coughs> to build your trust and earn your confidence. But we've got a lot of work to do. Peters was a teacher, a principal, and administrator, working in Houston and Chicago, among other cities. But he says what happened in his life much earlier had the most impact on him. In Houston, Texas, I go visit my 28-year-old brother, who's been in prison since he was 18. In Pensacola, I go visit my brother, who I lost to gun violence. I'm standing before you because education changed my life. So the project obviously has kind of been on hold and it's definitely something that as I've talked about it with other teachers, particularly in other districts, it has the potential to do what the statewide student identification number did years ago. I think that is only about 20 years old or so. And what that student ID number did was it allowed us to track kids who have high rates of mobility, you know, maybe start out in Providence, then move to Central Falls, then move to Pawtucket, then move to Newport, then go back to Providence. And what the student ID number has allowed us to do is to kind of keep track of those students and know where we need to go to get that data. So it's not like those students completely fall off the radar when they leave one district to go to another. While Providence is doing this learner profile project, it has huge statewide potential implications because if a student does, let's say, leave Providence and go to Newport, right, which is another urban core district, maybe about a half an hour, 45 minutes away. If this learner profile 
is accessible at a statewide level, then all of a sudden a new teacher who gets this student in their classroom in the middle of the school year has access to all of their historical data beyond just a grade transcript. They have the student's you know, goal history. Um, oh, when you were in the eighth grade, you wanted to be an electrical engineer. You know, Let's talk about that. And it gives you a better snapshot of the whole student beyond just their test scores. Hi, my name is Danielle Berkovitz and I'm a Teach Plus Rhode Island Policy Fellow. Um, I came into education in 2012 through the organization called Teach for America and I was really drawn to Teach for America because um, I had minored in education in college but I wasn't quite sure if I was 100% positive about education until I started learning about all the educational inequities that exist in our country. Growing up from an, coming from an immigrant family, I, I understood what it was like to be an outsider. Um, so specifically special education was something that I was very drawn to and um, I haven't looked back ever since. So I work at Mount Pleasant High School in Providence as a um, special educator for grades nine through 12. Um, I am the teacher leader for special education. So I oversee 19 teachers and I also teach um, transition and research class. Data is very important for special education. Um, you know, we're responsible for creating these individualized education plans for every single student that qualifies um, and has a disability. So without the proper data, we can't tailor our instruction or the goals to um, make students' education plans individualized. So we really need accurate assessments and data to complete this information. And what we realize is that there are a ton of different resources that our teachers are using out there. Um, so we have to try and capture all of that into creating these reading, math, writing goals, and transition goals. So data is definitely, without data, we wouldn't be able to produce the material that we need. Within special education, um, a student is, uh, by law, they are, they are supposed to get an um, updated individualized education plan, which is a legal document every single year. And then every three years, they're supposed to um, get a reevaluation where we reevaluate um, to determine if they qualify for special education or not. So this individualized education plan that we create is the legal document and with it comes a myriad of responsibilities um, that the special educator has to do and, and anyone that services the student. Um, so you'll see service hours, the amount of time a student is supposed to get special education services, any um, other services like adaptive physical education, speech therapy, counseling, um, that's also on the individualized education plan. Um, so basically it's an it's a annual map 
that is created for the student to help better their education and make their educational experience as normal as possible by trying to eliminate any barriers that they might have. Um, I formerly was an inclusion special education teacher, which um, meant that I was integrated within the general education classroom. So I worked with anywhere from 10 to 20 teachers every single year because, you know, within high school, you go from class to class. So getting all of that information from there for many different teachers is really difficult. So it's, it's a lot simpler for the teacher that you're working with on a daily basis you know the you have the English teacher and the math teachers where a majority of the student services lie but then um, if you know science and social studies and any other class can be a little more difficult uh, especially if you're not in there on a daily basis but I mean it's it is it's I wouldn't say it wasn't getting done because it definitely does it has to get done but it is just, you know, a lot of digging that a teacher, if they want to get the full picture, um, sometimes, you know, you're not even aware of a resource that a teacher might be using that could give you really great information. So it's, it's, it takes a lot of, a lot of time to get the full picture and you really want it. This is, like I said, this is a legal document and you, you don't want it to be the bare minimum. You want it to um, really show the student's story of their educational experience and what they need to be successful in the classroom. So you don't, you don't want to miss anything in that. Um, so t taking the time to, you know, fully understand the full picture. It it takes a long time, especially when you're dealing with a caseload of 20 students um, with 20 very unique schedules. It it can be very time consuming just gathering data. It's it's been a very unique experience with distance learning. So Mount Pleasant services a wide array of students um, with that are um, differently abled. So we have severe and profound students that um, are still working on learning how to read um, from students that you wouldn't even, you know, know had a disability. Um, so servicing all these students um, in special education has been very, very interesting um, and challenging. You know, I've seen a lot of great things come of distance learning, you know, to students on students that, you know, you are going on to Zoom conferences that, that you know, are still learning their ABCs um, and being able to use this online platform is really, really cool to see. And, you know, this is where a lot of their potential is coming out, but it's also really, like, really hard for a lot of our kids because uh, school is so social. So, you know, seeing their friends on a daily basis, it, that's a lot of the high school experience. Um, no matter what level of special education you're on, that social interaction is a huge piece that is lacking. Um, and we're trying to make up for through Zoom calls or just reaching out um, and having Zoom parties with, with all of our students. But actually servicing the kids, is, it's definitely been 
um, tricky and I'm so grateful to work with such amazing educators that are using all these amazing online platforms like Zoom, Screencastify, Edpuzzle, um, News to You, um, and they're getting really creative, which is awesome. But it definitely, it definitely is um, trial and error, and we're experiencing a lot of uh, technical difficulties, and then we're also experiencing a lot of gains like I said um, earlier. It's definitely been a new experience. I know we're all eager to get back into the classroom. We all miss our students but we're I, I have to say like I work with some really great teachers that are that are working really hard to try and make this um, as similar to the classroom as possible so that students aren't missing out but you know at the end of the day, we won't really know until we're back in the classroom. Hello, my name is Keith Nalbeck, and I'm a Teach Plus Rhode Island Policy Fellow. Uh, I'm also an advisor at the Med High School in Providence, Rhode Island. This is my second year in Teach Plus. Uh, I really think it's a solid group. I love the idea of teachers having more say in um, policy and um, there being more opportunity for teachers to have voice in what's happening uh, since they're ultimately the ones that are in the classroom working closely with the kids so they absolutely know what's happening on the ground and should have a voice so i've made a speech at the rhode island foundation uh, on behalf of student choice and student voice there's been other conferences and opportunities for us to hear, you know, great minds in Rhode Island that are pushing for innovation in education. I can't name them all off the top of my head, but Teach um, Plus has really been instrumental in connecting us with the Department of Ed and other nonprofits that are advocating for change in education for the better. The Med High School started just shy of uh, 25 years ago. Dennis Lickey and uh, Elliot Washer, co-founders, wanted to look at education completely different and flip it on its head. So they just started with the mantra, one student at a time. There's an advisor that is uh, the primary educator for a set of students in advisory, usually about 15, 16 students. And the advisor is responsible for guiding them through their educational journey throughout all of high school. So the students stay with the same advisor for all four years. Um, it's also a real world project-based school. So the students train um, in their freshman year to learn how to do cover letters and resumes and be prepared to go out to internships. And the really fascinating part is the, the students then go out probably three months into ninth grade, making calls, uh, doing interviews, and they land internships where they learn under an apprenticeship style uh, education from mentors in the community. And that's twice a week. Uh, and that is their school day. Those are the two days out of the week. Uh, as an advisor, I'm a certified educator responsible for a lot of their academic work, um, but we play multiple hats, sometimes social workers, sometimes, you know, a challenging educator that pushes them a little bit further than they thought possible. There's all different roles that we play, uh, but ultimately we're there for the students. We support them. We never stop believing in them, and we try to push them to their best ability. So the Met, the Met is a public choice school, uh, doesn't fall into the charter category, but the students do apply there. And at this point, 
it's a pretty eclectic group of students that can range from all over Rhode Island, you know, whether it be different culture, background, demographic, um, you know, it really, it's a wide array of students at this point. So there's no specific niche that we like attract. It's usually students that are really interested in taking control of some of their learning and having a voice in what direction their learning goes, like, you know, what their education consists of day in and day out. So within the, the equality building on the Met campus, I've been very proactive in forming a student government, which I know a lot of places have, but it was pretty great to be part of the grassroots movement of making that happen organically with other students. It really gives them um, a strong voice in the equality com community. It, it, it keeps evolving into a pretty cool process. We try to make it as real as possible. So the year that just passed, students were campaigning, they had campaign teams, they were marketing, um, they have they have to give speeches in front of the entire school, citing a few things that they see that can be fixed or that they would like to advocate and improve on. And then we actually got real voting machines into the building on behalf of the Secretary of State and the program that she's running. So we try to make the process as real as possible. And that has given life to the student voice and a forum for the students to be able to really try to contribute and participate in that democratic process that we encourage within the building. I mean, we work with a lot of student groups and if we're not working directly with them, sometimes um, since we empower students and help them self-advocate and go for what they want, I'll allow them to connect to student uh, youth groups outside of the school. So a lot of students have been in the uh, Providence Student Union, which has you know, received national recognition, Youth in Action, New Urban Arts, AS220, uh, youth Pride RI, Diversity Talks, train students to um, basically facilitate uh, professional development uh, for, other, for other people. So all these youth groups are really, they tie in together because they give students a place to be heard and a place for students to take action in what they want to see fixed or what they want to see their future to consist of. So like I said earlier, I believe uh, I've been there for 13 years now, meaning I've graduated three sets of students. And a very consistent thread throughout all those advisories has been the students come in one way, have to go through a process of unlearning. They're usually very, they, they don't have that level of responsibility that they know how to take on. They don't know how to manage their independent work time. Um, they don't have time management and organizational skills. Um, there's nothing on their resume except maybe babysitting for mom. So what we do is give them an opportunity to really build and create a path of their own through the internships, through the responsibility that is kind of thrust upon them gradually. But we're starting in ninth grade. They're responsible for making that phone call to the internship, which might sound like nothing to us, but for a young person is very intimidating, um, but that's why we take them through the training. They, they, a lot of times the internship hires a student after they've completed their, their coursework uh, throughout the school year and they hire them for the summer. I've even had students who graduated college and come back and then land a, a, a career with an internship they had eight years earlier as a ninth grader because they've built up that rapport and uh, the relationship and the bond with the mentor is so solid 
that once they have their credentials, they're they're dying to hire them. So I think there's a different level of responsibility and maturity that med students typically have um, compared to some other schools. And I don't think that other schools don't have students like that too. Of course they do, but I think it's just a very common thing that comes out of med school students because of their the opportunity that they have to prove themselves and to take ownership of their learning and not be more complacent in their learning. I think there there needs to be more more student groups like TSU, you know, YAA, NUA, AS220, all those groups, um, because they create a forum for students of all different interests, all different backgrounds, cultures, passions to come together and have a voice. And so I think we could take that to the next level and do it on the school level. Although I love the grassroots movements of all these smaller nonprofits that are trying their best to make that happen. There, I really don't see a reason why students shouldn't have more voice in what their learning looks like in a high school. Um, so, you know, the Met, that's something that we do. The student is part of their learning plan. Their learning plan builds their curricula that they'll have for the trimester or for the year. Their family is invited to that meeting and pretty much has to be at that meeting to also give voice to what that learning looks like. So it's not just the district or the teacher saying, here's what's expected of you, scripted. If you don't do this, then you're not a good student. If you do do this, then you're an awesome student. I just don't think that's how life works. So I don't think that's how education should work. There's gotta be more um, opportunity. So I know the state has tried to implement the learning plan, but I think it, you can't build those things that make it great until you work on the culture. So if there isn't enough intentional, basically creating a forum for students to give voice to what their learning might look like and to build camaraderie and to build relationships that are meaningful with the adults and the teachers that are in the building, and, and it's seen as just another effort or another stunt to try to build culture and it's not authentic, then I don't think you're really ever going to get there. And that learning plan doesn't really serve much purpose um, because the student's just gonna, they're just gonna see it as another assignment, not, oh, wow, I have voice in my curriculum, my path and what I might do with my life. So I, I think it starts with culture and relationships and then you can move to these tools that can invite student voice. As a teacher, I don't think you're limited to just what you have to teach and then go home. If you want to take that initiative, um, I think you can say something at a staff meeting and try to build that up. You could also do it within your classroom, like sincerely take 10 minutes to connect with the students, hear their stories, hear about what they're thinking, what's going on in their life, and not as like a stunt, but to authentically care about the students' lives and know what's going on. And obviously that, that serves a purpose of being able to connect and understand where they're at and, and be more mindful of how you can best work with them. But if it's not authentic, I, I think the students recognize that. So if you don't love working with students, this isn't gonna work. So I, I think asking, asking the students and listening more is uh, one very simple way that you can, you can build this. So it's pretty cool. Uh, a couple of students that I have have been part of other conferences and programs that are going on. So in particular, uh, yesterday, a young man from my advisory attended an education hackers conference, and he was one of the students that spoke to 
you know, the 90 plus adults that were in the, the Zoom or the, the Google Hangout. And I think just more things like that in the community can help students realize that adults actually want to hear from them and adults want to make things better. But if there's not that intentional forum, I think there's, you know, that disconnect. And then the students assume that their voice doesn't matter and the adults then just follow through with, you know, whatever their curriculum is. So that's been a cool thing. And then, and then the student shared out this morning an advisory on a, on a Google Meet meeting. And then all the kids got to think about how they might be able to share their information, share their voice. But I think the Met, his overall purpose was the Met was very ready for distance learning because of the way in which it's set up, because of the philosophy, because of the one student out of time approach that we take to this. It, it's a little bit, it's, it's not easy. And no one's saying any part of this is easy, but we were set up to make it the transition a little bit more easy than other districts because of the way in which we approach things. Hi, my name is Raymond Steinmetz and I am a Teach Plus Senior Policy Fellow. Thank you for listening to the Teach Plus Podcast. Please join us next week as we sit down with the Providence Student Union to discuss their experiences as students in our schools. The Teach Plus podcast is available on all platforms.